Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I'm your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Day of the Tentacle, a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed and published by LucasArts and released for the MS-DOS and Macintosh computer platforms back in 1993. We're going to talk about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 59. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT. I have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. And I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the podcast community. We have a ton of great fun out there. And Discord is also the home of our weekend and monthly gaming challenges. Now, usually I record this portion of the podcast every week after the challenge is complete, but I am feeling a little under the weather, so I'm actually going to pre-record this section, so I'm not going to have the score updates as part of this episode, just in case I'm not feeling well enough to actually do the recording on Sunday evening, which is when I usually do it. But I will say, the weekly gaming challenges, the weekend gaming challenge, that was out there. We actually did something a little bit different this week. We made it so that we were basically jumping 20 years into the future, which means all of the challenges this past weekend have been focused on modern classic games, meaning those games that are really good games today that will be classics in 20 years. The November monthly challenge, which is going to run throughout the entire month of November, is all focused on shareware classics. So these are the games that you probably got on a floppy disk in a cardboard sleeve at a computer store back in like the early to mid 1990s. This is a lot of fun. I love shareware, by the way, in general, which is one of the reasons why I decided that the November monthly challenge would be all focused around shareware. Just like we did in October, the actual challenges have been submitted by the community. So if this sounds like a fun time, if you want to get your name on the leaderboard and you want to compete for prizes, yes, there are actual prizes. Even if you do not win the overall competition, Discord is the place to do it. I should also mention that we do have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if you want even more classic gaming today, goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. We post a new Patreon exclusive podcast every other week. This week, we're going to be posting a podcast on Wednesday, which is focused on basically a celebration of two dimensional Mario games with a particular focus or featuring, I should say, Super Mario Bros. Wonder, which is a wonderful game. We're going to talk all about that in the Patreon-exclusive podcast coming up this Wednesday. I do also want to give a shout-out to our Pantheon patrons. They are Iso, Rich Senewald, and David Morton. Thank you guys for supporting the show. Thank you all for supporting the show, whether you contribute monetarily or you simply listen on a regular basis. I truly do appreciate all of the support. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to give a brief overview of the anatomy of an episode because for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context. How was the game made? Why was the game made? And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we give any numerical rankings or star ratings or anything like that. But we do look at every single game from several different perspectives. We take a look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? We do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should go out of your way 
to play that game today. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend them, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. By all means, go for it. You will have a good time. These are still really good games. They're not quite Pantheon level, though, but they are still highly, highly recommended. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot recommend to the broad population. They've either aged a little bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. You still could have a good time, potentially, if you do enjoy the genre in which the game lives or you have nostalgia for the game itself. By all means, go for it. But I cannot recommend these games to the broader population. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Day of the Tentacle. Day of the Tentacle is a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed and published by LucasArts and released for the Microsoft DOS and Macintosh computer platforms back in 1993. Before we can talk about Day of the Tentacle, we have to take a couple of steps back in time to rejoin some adventure game compatriots who we've spoken about several times over the course of the podcast, that being the four-person tag team of Ron Gilbert, Gary Winnick, Tim Schafer, and Dave Grossman. Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick were the duo responsible for the original Lucasfilm adventure title Maniac Mansion back in 1987, which is right around the time that Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman were beginning their LucasArts careers. From that humble beginning, which was the game that birthed the venerable script creation utility for Maniac Mansion, or SCUM, engine, the crew went on to work on various games between then and the early 90s, oftentimes working together to deliver sheer adventure game awesomeness, such as both The Secret of Monkey Island, which we talked about a couple months ago, and Monkey Island 2 LeChuck's Revenge, which we haven't yet talked about, but will certainly be talking about in the future. Over the course of creating those and other games, both Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman had begun to assume roles of greater project responsibility, oftentimes taking direction from Ron Gilbert, who up to this point had been the project lead for a number of their collaborations. After the completion of Monkey Island 2, however, Ron Gilbert believed that both Schafer and Grossman were ready to begin leading their own projects, and with Gilbert's backing, the duo were promoted to project leads. With their promotions in hand, Schaefer and Grossman had to figure out what their first project would be, and while they kicked around a couple of different ideas, one that they kept returning to was a sequel to Maniac Mansion, something that would be able to showcase all of the improvements, both in terms of design and technology, that had been injected into the LucasArts process over the years. And the fact is, there were a number of improvements, and we're going to go through a few of them. For one, there was the iMuse music system, which had been introduced following the release of The Secret of Monkey Island, and was, for all intents and purposes, a way for soundtracks to be created dynamically based on the actions taken by a player, rather than having predetermined tracks that simply looped. Secondly, the graphics technology of the time had advanced dramatically since Maniac Mansion had been released. Maniac Mansion used a maximum of 16 colors for every scene through the use of EGA, or Enhanced Graphics Adapter Graphics, whereas in the early 90s, VGA, or Video Graphics Array Graphics, were becoming commonplace, which supported up to 256 colors on screen at any point in time. 
There were also a number of improvements that had been made to the Scum engine itself over the years, including streamlining the verb commands that the engine would use, the inclusion of additional graphics for inventory items and other world objects, and a number of other revisions that would serve to enhance the capabilities of the engine. Perhaps most importantly, though, were improvements made to the LucasArts adventure game design process, whereby there was significantly more focus on making sure that their games wouldn't have dead-end situations, would have puzzles that were both logical and made sense, and, generally speaking, would provide a more user-friendly approach to adventure game design in whole. These improvements had been made while Schaefer and Grossman had been working under Ron Gilbert's tutelage. Now, however, it would be time to put these improvements and the duo's own learnings into action. It was time for Schaefer and Grossman to create their own title, and in the process, hopefully, continue to advance the state of the art for the adventure game genre. As their new project kicked off, Schaefer and Grossman met with both Ron Gilbert and Gary Winnick to brainstorm ideas for the game, and one concept, which was originally thought of by Gilbert, by the way, appealed to everyone. That idea was the concept of time traveling playing a huge role in the game. Now, this idea, while brilliant in theory, could have been met with a number of pitfalls unless addressed very carefully, and the team recognized that time travel is actually a really tricky thing to get right, especially when you begin to consider mind-bending paradoxes that can result from changing something in the past to affect the future. We've probably all seen examples of time travel in pop culture being a bit head-scratching in some instances, and sometimes even downright brain-melting. But Schaefer and Grossman had a much more simplified view of the situation. Rather than look at time travel as something complex to navigate, they looked at it as essentially an extension of the cause-and-effect relationship already prevalent in adventure games. Whether the cause of something happening is because it was done in the past, or it was done in another room, is completely irrelevant. Their stance was, if you boiled down the concept into its core elements, time travel mechanics weren't anything to be concerned over. So, with that foundational idea in place, the team began to think about how they would design the time periods, and in fact, what time periods they would focus on to include in the game in general. One idea that quickly came up in discussions was the American Revolutionary War timeframe, right around the time of the drafting of the United States Constitution. When I was reading about the synthesis of this idea, it struck me as one of those situations where everyone in a room just immediately starts playing off of each other when they hear something that just works. Schaefer and Grossman immediately began riffing off of the more legendary myths in American history, like George Washington chopping down a cherry tree, were Benjamin Franklin flying a kite and inventing, in quotes, electricity, and decided to use and include those items in the game, along with other historical figures like John Hancock and Thomas Jefferson. The time period gave the team a lot of content to work with, but one thing that you might be wondering, and something I wondered myself, is would this be an issue for international adventure gamers? I'm not meaning to suggest that individuals from other countries don't know American history, since I'm sure there are some listeners out there who likely know American history better than some of our citizens, but it would be an awfully nationalist view to assume that American history was pervasive across the rest of the world. And if a game from a prominent adventure game company was going to heavily feature American history in their game, and even base some of the puzzles around the mythology, so to speak, of that history... Would this alienate a certain portion of prospective players? Now, interestingly, this exact issue was addressed in an interview where Schaefer and Grossman explained that they had considered the potential pitfalls associated with a storyline and puzzles that utilize such a high degree of embedded cultural references. But they both noted that as long as there was a way in-game to solve the puzzles, then it was something that they would still want to pursue. I will say that in all fairness, Every puzzle that they included in the game had in-game hints integrated within the environment or character dialogues, so it wouldn't have been impossible to figure out how to work through those puzzles without prior knowledge of American history. But without some of that background cultural context, the fact that your character is talking about cherry trees with George Washington 
could feel really, really random, even though you could deduce the puzzle solution based on clues present in the game. That said, and jumping ahead a little bit, the game actually sold really well internationally, with Schaefer even noting that the concerns didn't amount to a whole heck of a lot, since a lot of international schools taught a great deal about American history as part of their curricula, certainly more so than what the United States school systems teach about European and other geographic regional history. Anyway, though, minor tangent aside, the team finalized the concept for using Revolutionary War America as one of their timeframes, with the comic possibilities it offered just too great to pass up. In what I thought was both a telling and funny comment, the team loved the idea of being able to mess with something so historically significant, like the signing of the Constitution, for what would ultimately be a very trivial benefit to a single person. Schaefer and Grossman recognized the absurdity here, and in a prior interview, they said something to the effect of, this is what adventure gaming is all about, doing crazy world-changing things just to benefit you. You may have ruined someone's life, but at least you got a vacuum cleaner installed in future basements, which does actually happen in the game. The other time periods, those being the present and future, both fell into place fairly easily, as they'd basically be the receivers of the historical changes occurring in the past. Of course, the future would also be a receiver of any actions performed in the present time period as well, but that didn't create nearly as much of a potential backstory issue as settling on the America of 1776. Around this time, too, was when Ron Gilbert left to create his own company, Humongous Entertainment, which was the company that would create a number of children's adventure titles in later years, like Pajama Sam, Putt-Putt, and Freddy Fish. This presented both a new risk as well as opportunity for the duo of Schaefer and Grossman. While they were both actively leading this new project, they still had Ron Gilbert to bounce ideas off of, and like we just mentioned, it was actually Gilbert who conceived the general concept and framework for their new game. Without Gilbert there to continue to provide guidance, Schaefer and Grossman lost the person who had been their mentor ever since they had joined LucasArts. At the same time, though, they now had the opportunity to show that all of that time working together and with Gilbert was worth it. Now, you might be thinking, geez, having two leads on a project might be a recipe for disaster. And you know what? I can speak from some experience here. Whenever I'm forced to collaborate with someone, very rarely does it lead to something better than if I had been the single lead or vice versa. But Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman didn't have any difficulty working together. In fact, they had been collaborating with each other on games for so long that they developed an amazing working relationship with each other. Now, this was partly due to their prior work experiences, but I think the other part of this was that both of them had personalities that just meshed together really well. We've seen this before when discussing The Secret of Monkey Island, that Schaefer and Grossman were each assigned to different tasks or characters depending on what style of humor was needed. But rather than sequester themselves in separate windowless rooms to work in a vacuum, they worked each activity as a collective whole, bouncing ideas off of each other for the greater good of the game. By the time Day of the Tentacle was being developed, both Schaefer and Grossman had, in their words, the equivalent of a really good marriage, because they both listened to each other, played off of each other's ideas, and ultimately made decisions based on who felt strongly about one thing or the other. It sounds to me like this was simply a match made in heaven, and one you don't oftentimes see in workplaces, or even in personal lives sometimes. There was something really cool that I thought illustrated the relationship perfectly. In the opening credits for the game, for any area where Schaefer and Grossman shared duties, the game was designed to randomly list one of them first, rather than hard-code a specific order to their names. I thought that was just awesome, and really showed the collaborative nature of the duo as well as the overall culture in LucasArts at the time. I've never heard of this being done for any other piece of entertainment. I'm sure it's possible that it was done elsewhere, and if anybody has any examples, please let me know. But this just really struck me as something truly admirable. Regardless, the narrative structure and overall framework for the game was set, and it was now time to determine the other design elements, one of which was the number of characters to be included in the game. Like we talked about during our Maniac Mansion episode, 
That game was unique in that rather than giving you a single protagonist to control, you were able to pick from a pool of characters, all of whom had different endings, specific puzzles they could work on, and interactions with the environment. And this was actually the original approach being taken on Day of the Tentacle as well, with six characters identified for players to choose from. A couple of the characters, Bernard and Razor, were from the original Maniac Mansion, while others, like Hoagie and Chester, would be original creations for Day of the Tentacle. The team began moving down this path and quickly determined that it wouldn't be feasible to do the same kind of design that was included in Maniac Mansion, primarily because of the additional resources it would require to animate the other characters in various situations, as well as the additional complexity that multiple paths through the game would introduce into the title. To understand why this was a big issue, let's take a step back to Maniac Mansion, and let's start by talking about its graphics and animations. In that game, you had seven or so characters to choose from, but each one had only very basic animations, like walking and talking. There really wasn't anything beyond that, so the overall graphics needs didn't increase dramatically by adding more characters. But, and this is something we'll talk about more in a few minutes, Day of the Tentacle was envisioned to be an interactive cartoon, something that would have the style and animations of cartoons from the Looney Tunes era of television. Now, I used to watch these quote-unquote old-school cartoons as a kid, and while they may seem quaint now in comparison to computer graphics, the fact that the animation was all hand-drawn and stitched together is still mind-boggling to me. Creating Day of the Tentacle as an interactive cartoon in that style meant that for every action— there would have to be detailed animations and graphics to go along with it, which would have upped the team's workload significantly. And with the possibility for multiple paths through the game while including a variety of characters that may or may not be selected by a player, the amount of work required to make everything function seamlessly and to create unique puzzles intertwined throughout each potential path through the game would increase dramatically. Because of these potential pitfalls, it was decided to refocus efforts and reduce the total character count down to three, those being Bernard, who was a nerdy guy with a fondness for technology, and he was the design team's favorite character from Maniac Mansion, so it only made sense to bring him over into the sequel. You also had Laverne, who was, quite frankly, a crazy woman who was apparently based on an ex-girlfriend of Dave Grossman's, and Hoagie, who was a roadie who was based on a megadeth roadie that the team had known. These three characters would be static throughout every player's playthrough, meaning the team didn't have to plan for any sort of player choice potentially increasing complexity. They just needed to figure out how to make all of their puzzles and various gameplay mechanics work across those three characters. Now before we continue, I do want to take a step back and note that in today's gaming world, it's very possible that the team would have been forced into including all of the characters they were originally thinking about, simply because it feels to me that today's computer game industry is all about shoehorning in more and more content, which can oftentimes be a detriment to the game itself. More content is great, when done right, but I see a lot of current games throw in meaningless things just to keep players playing longer, or to sell more DLC, or whatever other reason game producers come up with. The fact that old-school adventure game companies like LucasArts often focused more on the artistic vision of the game, while allowing their project leads the autonomy to cut features and content that wouldn't have added significant value, is something that I think a lot of companies today can learn from. I'm not suggesting that game companies back then were infallible, and I'm sure there were plenty of examples of older companies acting just as money-hungry as modern-day publishers. But it's just the way it feels to me. It really does seem like games made back in the 80s and 90s followed a different core thought process than many of the games made today. And somewhat interestingly, I made this same comment several years ago when I played Day of the Tentacle for the prior podcast that I hosted. It's kind of interesting how things still haven't really changed, even years later, and in many ways, companies today are even more focused on bottom-line profit at the expense of the gamer experience. Anyway, tangent aside, the team now had their characters, they had a loose design for the narrative structure, and they had one overriding principle. This was going to be an interactive cartoon, the likes of which players had not seen in a computer game, or any game, really, before. To achieve this goal required the intersection of story, which Schaefer and Grossman were working, art, and music. 
Now, interestingly enough, beyond knowing that the game would be a cartoon of sorts, they didn't know what the style would actually look like until they began working with the art team, which consisted of two primary leads, Larry Ahern, who was the lead animator for the game, and Peter Chan, who was the lead artist for the title. So, as you'd expect, the task of figuring out exactly what Day of the Tentacle would look like fell to the two of them, and interestingly, their story is also one of collaboration and mutual respect. Effectively, Chan was responsible for the majority of the background art in the game, while Ahern was responsible for all of the animations, including the character designs for both playable and non-playable characters. As I noted earlier, the game's art style took inspirations from old-school Looney Tunes-era cartoons from decades prior, while at the same time fitting in nicely with the resurgence in hand-drawn animation that was occurring in the late 80s and early 90s, which was popularized by shows on Nickelodeon and, of course, Disney cartoons. This created an interesting dilemma for designing the background art, because unlike traditional hand-drawn techniques using pencil and paper, the art for the game was expected to be created digitally within the confines of a computer. Luckily for the team, LucasArts had purchased a large scanner for the purposes of digitizing background artwork into the game, which we talked about briefly during our Fate of Atlantis episode. But that is what allowed Chan to do what he wanted to do, which was to draw the backgrounds using pencil and paper, then he would make the lines darker by using markers, and then scan that black and white drawing into a computer where it could be colorized. Something that I found interesting, especially when I think about rudimentary drawing programs like Microsoft Paint, is that the process of coloring the backgrounds in wasn't nearly as straightforward as you might imagine, as every time the fill command was used, it created a pixely mess that had to be cleaned up after the fact. The term pixel, by the way, in this case, comes from an interview conducted with the art team, but I wonder if the pixel issue was really more of a limitation in the number of colors available on displays and graphics cards at the time, which would have led to something called dithering of the image, which is effectively something that happens when a true color can't be represented successfully on the screen, so instead adjacent colors are used and blended together. It's not clear to me exactly what the issue was, but suffice it to say, it added a ton of time to the art process. Something else that I found really interesting about the development of the background art for the game is the fact that Chan wasn't much of a gamer, and therefore as he would design scenes, he would embed various items that added flavor to any given room or location. When Schaefer and Grossman saw this, they actually asked him to take out a lot of those flourishes because it would cause confusion with many adventure gamers, because most times adventure gamers assume that the items in the scene would be able to be picked up or interacted with in some way. Now, I thought this was a fascinating design nugget. A lot of times I think about the details included in a scene and in my brain, I make the logical leap as to what items are able to be picked up and which aren't. In the best adventure games, that distinction is obvious, but I wonder if that's because the adventure game designers have been thinking about this the whole time, while the player, like me, looks at it as just an assumed feature of adventure games. Turning our attention to the animation aspect of the game, in order to achieve a true cartoon-like appearance and style, the character models had to be drawn in such a way that you could detect the emotions of the characters, which was oftentimes difficult to do in older games due to the number of pixels allotted to the face and head of the character. This is actually something that we take completely for granted nowadays, with resolutions like 4K or even 1080p, where we have a lot of detail available to us. When we compare that to the old days in computer graphics, That's a whole lot more pixels than developers and designers had access to. And just to put it into perspective, Day of the Tentacle ran at a resolution of 320 by 240 pixels, and older games than that sometimes ran at an even lower resolution. When you only have so few pixels to work with, it becomes increasingly difficult to include details in a scene or character, and this was something that Ahern had to deal with directly. As a result, He decided that, based on the agreed-upon cartoon art style, he was going to create the characters with almost caricature-like features, like bigger heads, exaggerated facial features, things like that, which would enable him to convey the emotion that games up to this point had difficulty showcasing, especially when you consider that many of their characters literally had heads that were only 8 pixels high. 
This was a revolutionary design decision in comparison to most, if not all, other adventure games of the time, and it would pave the way for other studios to branch out into more detailed characters and animations. Interestingly, the conceptual bigger head design was also used in the original Maniac Mansion, so it almost feels like a happy little accident that the stylistic decision both worked within Day of the Tentacle while providing a sense of continuity with Maniac Mansion. So, at this point, the art style was agreed upon, and both Chan and Ahern were working on their respective work tasks. One overriding principle they both wanted to implement, however, was that the style across all characters, rooms, items, and everything else had to be consistent. One of the pitfalls they had seen working on prior adventure games like Monkey Island 2 was that the stylistic elements were sometimes inconsistent with each other, which would oftentimes create a feeling of things not fitting together as well as they could. This was something they would work very hard to address, and for what it's worth, I personally think they succeeded here. Now, I did come across another interesting story related to the art and animation, specifically the opening cutscene that played as the Purple Tentacle drinks the Toxic Sludge and Bernard and crew return to the mansion. That entire opening sequence was created by an intern that LucasArts hired to work on that one aspect of the game. When I read that, I just thought to myself, wow, that would have been so awesome to intern with LucasArts, and more importantly, create something as iconic as the opening to the Day of the Tentacle. Absolutely amazing. And by the way, that intern's name was Kyle Balda, and he would go on to have quite the career in Hollywood, having worked on and directed films for Illumination, like the Minions series, Pixar, where he worked on A Bug's Life, Toy Story 2, and Monsters, Inc., and Industrial Lights and Magic, where he worked on films like the original Jumanji and The Mask. Obviously, he's a very talented guy, so perhaps the fact that he was responsible for the Day of the Tentacle opening sequence isn't really so surprising at all. Another interesting tidbit about the opening is that it was the first time, at least that I could see, that LucasArts started a game with an animated sequence like that, once again owing to its desire to be as cartoon-like as possible. One other cool aspect of that scene was that, unlike future games, the sequence wasn't actually a video file or otherwise pre-rendered. It was animated on the fly as the scene played out. This was yet another way that LucasArts was advancing the state of adventure gaming, which is something they would continue to do throughout the 90s. So, we've talked about the narrative and design, we've talked about the art, and now it's time to talk about the music, which once again is another example of team collaboration. You see, the music in the game was composed by not one, not two, but three different composers— Peter McConnell, Michael Land, and Clint Bajakian, each of whom was assigned to work on a different time period within the game. While in some instances you might think that such a separation of duties would create the potential for inconsistent musical motifs, that really didn't happen here. As is the case with nearly everything to do with Day of the Tentacle, everyone came together and worked pretty much flawlessly with each other, creating an end product that is both iconic and amazing. Now, I do want to talk about the iMuse system here, and even though we've discussed it in prior episodes, it's probably good to have a bit of a refresher. The iMuse system was the music engine that LucasArts used for a number of their adventure games, which was a system that allowed the music being played in the game to match up to the actions being taken by the player. So, walking from one room into another or picking up an item might make the music change just slightly. Rather than playing totally different tracks, the underlying music would maintain a similar theme, with additional parts, flourishes, or other additive, and sometimes subtractive, music coming into play as a scene played out. In this way, the iMuse system effectively lets you experience your own personal soundtrack as the game plays out, rather than the traditional looping MIDI music most adventure games used at the time. What many may not realize, however, is that iMuse was entirely dependent upon the speed of your underlying computer, Meaning that if a given scene played out faster on one machine than another, then iMuse had to take that into account and either stall the music using additional filler pieces or accelerate beyond the expected theme length. Now this, to me, is an absolutely insane attention to detail. These composers and music programmers had to take so much into account when designing their music, and they couldn't even rely upon their music to play out the same way on two different machines sitting side by side. 
The fact that they figured out a way to make the experience equally awesome for everyone is a testament to their intellect and dedication to their craft. I honestly was flabbergasted when I originally read about this. I do also want to note that LucasArts, and by extension the Day of the Tentacle team, supported a huge number of sound cards, with different musical arrangements being generated for each different synthesizer. As you may know, computer sound and music encompasses a wide spectrum, from as simple as single notes emanating from an internal PC speaker to fully orchestrated kinds of arrangements. Day of the Tentacles supported sound platforms ran the gamut from very simple FM synthesis-based sound cards like AdLib, all the way to the venerable Roland MT32, which was the sound module to have for DOS gaming. In all cases, each soundtrack for the various platforms were tweaked in order to try to convey the instrumentation that the composers intended, which was a difficult and frustrating process, especially considering the quality of the sounds, or perhaps more accurately, lack of quality available on lesser sound cards. Still, the team put in the effort to create a quality musical product, and it showed. Somewhat less interesting, though equally important, was the fact that Day of the Tentacle was the first LucasArts game to have recorded voices at release, at least with the CD-ROM version of the title. While other games like Fate of Atlantis added speech after their original release, Day of the Tentacle was able to take advantage of CD-ROM technology that was, at the time, rapidly accelerating in popularity, though still not quite pervasive across the industry. Interestingly, the only reason they had the time to include speech when the game launched was because they missed their original release window. So because they had that extra time on their hands, they decided to augment the experience with digitized speech, shipping both a floppy disk and CD version of the title. Definitely an example of turning lemons into lemonade, so to speak. Speaking of the voice acting, in yet another way LucasArts was setting itself apart from the rest of the industry, there was a focus on hiring quality, actual voice talent to record the voices in the game. This is immediately apparent when you compare a game like Day of the Tentacle with other games of the time, most notably those by Sierra, who hadn't yet branched out into using real voice talent in their games. Though, that was something that was about to change as well, with Gabriel Knight being Sierra's first game to utilize real actors. Still, LucasArts got there first, if only just barely. It's fairly obvious that the entire development of the game was truly a labor of love, with everyone involved working together as a well-oiled machine to create something that would become known as a landmark title across all gaming, not just the adventure game genre. The game was released in 1993, and while not selling terribly well by traditional game standards, was a moderate commercial success from an adventure game perspective, with 80,000 copies sold over its lifetime. I recognize that this number likely seems low in comparison to the mega-behemoth releases we see nowadays, but back in the early 90s, and within the adventure game genre, these weren't horrible sales numbers. In fact, Day of the Tentacle was more successful than many of LucasArts' other adventure titles to date, aside from those titles involving a certain hat-wearing archaeologist. Beyond the game's commercial performance, Day of the Tentacle would receive universal critical acclaim. It won various Game of the Year awards, has been included on multiple top games of all time lists, is considered by many to be the best adventure game of all time, and ultimately led to Tim Schafer's ascension as one of, if not the, most well-known bankable adventure game creator of the LucasArts era. The story, though, doesn't end there. Around 10 years ago, Tim Schafer's company, Double Fine, would acquire the rights to Day of the Tentacle, allowing them to release a remaster of the game. Now, to put this into perspective, at the point that the Day of the Tentacle rights were reacquired, LucasArts had just been purchased by Disney. Trying to regain any such licenses from a company like Disney would prove to be difficult for anyone, let alone an independent development studio trying to recapture magic in a bottle. What ultimately swayed the decision to release the rights, which I found heartwarming, was the fact that many of the executives responsible for the decision had previously played the game as children, and had such fond memories of the experience that they pushed for the remaster to happen. And when that remaster happened, it was unlike other remasters of the time, as this wasn't simply an upscaled resolution with less pixelated graphics. Rather, nearly every aspect of the game was redone, 
From the backgrounds and character artwork, to the interface, to the quality of the instrument samples used for in-game music. Even with the remaster, it was evident how much care and love was put into the game, as each aspect of the remaster design could be toggled on or off, and mixed and matched to create an experience tailored to how the individual player wanted to experience the game. A developer commentary track was also included, and if you listen to it, you'll hear how much each individual really believed in both the original game and its remaster. I also want to note that the full original version of Maniac Mansion is itself included as part of Day of the Tentacle, playable via a computer in Weird Ed's bedroom. This was included in both the original release as well as the remaster, though nothing was updated for the remastered version of the game. As Tim Schafer once mentioned, it's crazy that a full-fledged game from not all that long ago was able to fit entirely within the new game he and the team had just created, effectively as a nice easter egg. Technology really was accelerating around this time. Beyond the remastered edition, there was also a fan pseudo-sequel released several years ago that, while I haven't had a chance to play it yet, actually looks pretty darn good. I am looking forward to getting into that at some point in the future. With Day of the Tentacle, we once again see how the crew over at LucasArts would evolve and continue to operate as one of the premier adventure game development companies in the world, while at the same time propelling Tim Schafer and Dave Grossman into the spotlight as superstar adventure game designers, a role that both have continued to excel in even today. While LucasArts as an adventure game company no longer exists, at least not in any sort of form that would resemble its 90s heyday, that does not mean that their contributions to adventure gaming are in any way diminished. I'm sure I join many in hoping that we continue to see returns to some of LucasArts' popular properties, similar to what Ron Gilbert and his team were able to accomplish with their recently released Return to Monkey Island. Whether we ever see Return to Maniac Mansion or not, the fact is that Day of the Tentacle will likely always be remembered as a cherished top-flight adventure game experience and will almost certainly continue to be revered as one of the best adventure games of all time. We are now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play Day of the Tentacle today versus when it was released back in 1993. So on the surface, Day of the Tentacle is a traditional LucasArts point-and-click adventure game in that it uses the Scum engine, it involves a purely mouse-driven gameplay interface, and involves you controlling your character, or actually characters, as you explore the game's world, solve puzzles, pick up and examine inventory items, speak with various non-player characters, and generally speaking, do the kinds of things you typically see in any point-and-click adventure title. But to distill Day of the Tentacle down to those foundational elements is ignoring the specific ways that the game transcends its contemporaries to become something much, much more. To start, Yes, Day of the Tentacle uses the Scum engine, which means you play the game by selecting verb commands that are explicitly listed on the screen, combining those commands with various objects, hotspots, people, and inventory items to create short sentence-like structures that form the primary means of interaction with the game world. Considering that Day of the Tentacle was the eighth game to use the Scum engine, you might expect a degree of polish and streamlining well beyond LucasArts' earlier adventure game efforts, and you would be absolutely correct in your assumption. Day of the Tentacle has pared down the overall number of verb commands to only nine essential actions, which serves to reduce any potential friction players may have previously faced when trying to figure out which command to select in any given situation. Similar to prior titles, Day of the Tentacle has a default action identified for every object, character, and hotspot in the game world, making it so that you don't have to always select a command from the verb list to interact with the game. As an example, the default action when mousing over a door is almost always open, because, well, what else do you typically do with doors? Beyond the verb command selection, the rest of the game and engine feels, for lack of a better term, 
polished and smooth. I don't really know a better way to describe it, but basically, if you play Day of the Tentacle, one of the things that will strike you is just how well the game plays, how well put together it is, and how easy it is to interact with the game world and do exactly what you want to do. You know how sometimes you sit down to watch a movie and you think, okay, cool, that was a good film. And then you sit down to watch its sequel and you suddenly go, oh, wow. That was so much better than the last film. They must have used the money they made on that first film to improve the cinematography, special effects, acting, sets, costumes, literally everything. Well, that's exactly what it feels like to play Day of the Tentacle. You recognize the greatness in LucasArts' prior adventure titles, but Day of the Tentacle just feels different in a really good way. Anyway, the core concept of the game, like we talked about earlier, is the concept of time travel and having multiple characters to control, each of whom get whisked off to a different time frame relatively early in the story. You have Hoagie the roadie, who gets sent to Revolutionary War-era America, Bernard the science nerdy guy from the original Maniac Mansion who remains in the present time, and Laverne, a sociopathic girl with a scalpel who gets sent 200 years into the future. This setup allows the player to control three different characters, each of which have their own puzzles, people to interact with, similar, albeit different, locations to explore, and in what is probably the most ingenious part of the game, a series of interconnected puzzles that play with the concept of time's impact on various objects. As an example, and no puzzle spoilers here, so this is purely hypothetical, imagine you're walking around the present day and you have a need for a rusted screw for some reason. Who knows, maybe you have to use it to inflict tetanus on someone or have them transported to a hospital so that you can hide out in an ambulance and avoid a number of guards stationed outside the emergency room. And yes, as I've said in the past, adventure game companies, you can hire me. Anyway, so you need a rusted screw. Well, you look around your current environment and you can't find any rusted screws in sight, but you do find a box of totally normal brand new screws. So you take one of those screws, you send it into the past, you have your character in the past expose the screw to water, and then magically when you return to the present day, you find a rusted screw in the spot where you placed it in the past. Time has worn the screw down, and the constant exposure to moisture has created the rusty tool you need in order to progress further in the story. Those kind of puzzles, and actually way better puzzles than that, pervade the entire game, with a number of puzzles that both use time to change an item's properties, as well as some puzzles that simply require exchanging items found in one time frame with another time frame, thereby creating an experience where the number of potential items at play is pretty sizable. Oh, and I should also mention that exchanging items between time periods is a super smooth process. Once you go through the prerequisite story explanation as to how items can be shifted from one time frame to another, the game allows you to continue transferring items simply by giving the item to a different character, represented as a portrait next to your inventory. I thought this was an awesome touch, and really reduced the amount of tedium that could have been present if the game's designers had taken a different approach. Seriously, I cannot impress upon you enough how well integrated and designed the puzzles are in this game. You know how when you play some adventure games, the puzzles you encounter are pretty much just find object X and use that object on some apparatus to advance the story? Well, in Day of the Tentacle, the puzzle design is much more complex, with interlocking systems, objects, and puzzle solutions providing the base item for future puzzles, and it feels absolutely amazing to play. Truly a world-class, well-designed adventure game puzzle experience. Beyond those puzzles, the fact that you control different characters in different time frames opens up a number of unique situations that makes the game both play differently depending on who you're controlling, while at the same time adding a layer of consistency to the entire experience. I loved the diversity of the character personalities, and the fact that you meet both historical figures as well as various descendants and ancestors of the Edison family throughout your playthrough provides an interesting twist that serves to increase the feeling that you are playing something truly unique and inspired. I could go on at length about every other way that Day of the Tentacle proved itself to be a premier adventure game experience, but I'll leave that praise until we start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. Before we do that, though, I do just want to take a look at the back of the box, because, as you all know, 
I love looking at the back of the box. I love reading how different companies try to market their titles because back when we were buying these games, a lot of times we didn't have a ton of insight as far as what the game was about, how the gameplay was. We certainly didn't have the internet or YouTube to look up gameplay videos. We sometimes had magazines we could refer to and reviews from that perspective. But a lot of times when we bought a game, we were making that buying decision based on what the box looked like and what was written on the back of the box. So, for Day of the Tentacle, the back of the box says, The Edisons are at it again. Dr. Fred's mutated purple tentacle is out to take over the world, and only you can stop him. Travel through time with three outrageous characters in this wacky graphic adventure which features cartoon-style animation and over 100 zany sound effects. And then there are a bunch of screenshots on the back of the box, along with basically one or two word descriptions of each. They are shock, mutation, desperation, high adventure, two-fisted action, twisted history, and romance. So that is what the back of the box for Day of the Tentacle says. And I've got to say, it would have sold me if I actually went to buy it when I was younger. I did not, in fact, play Day of the Tentacle when I was younger. I ended up playing it for the first time several years ago when I was hosting my last podcast, and I absolutely loved it. Let's talk about what I feel about it today, though, with this podcast, as we're going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The game was originally designed to mimic old-school Looney Tunes-era cartoons, and I've got to say, I think the artists knocked it out of the park. There was such a distinct sense of style across every single graphical element in the game, from the character-like character designs, to the -the over-the-top and slightly distorted room backgrounds, to the inventory items that you pick up throughout your adventure. Every visual in the game was amazing and cartoon-like to look at. Animations were similarly very well done, so much so that you could, at times, mistake the game for actually being a cartoon. Now, one of the things that struck me about the graphics, outside of the general quality, was how consistent the styling was across the three different time periods that your characters have to traverse. It was awesome to flip back and forth between the past, present, and future, and see how the environments changed over time, while for the most part, continuing to maintain a certain stylistic and architectural framework. You can tell that the game's artists had fun with this one. It is simply a joy to look at, and regardless of if you play the original version of the game, which is what I did for this podcast episode, or the remaster, which I've played previously, you're guaranteed to get a feast for the eyes. Moving on to the sound and music, the music here is pretty much perfect throughout the entire game, with different time periods having different themes interspersed throughout the various rooms and locations that you'll find yourself in. My personal favorite musical tracks are probably the ones from the past, as I enjoyed how the music intermixed traditional Americana themes with the rest of the game's soundtrack. I thought it was a great, subtle touch, and one that served to enhance the overall experience of playing the title. Beyond the music, there needs to be special mention about the game's voice acting, which was universally excellent. Considering the time the game was released, it was rare to find a game that not only had voice acting in it, but actually had quality voice acting, and Day of the Tentacle absolutely delivers. That quality is likely because LucasArts decided to hire actual voice actors and not simply allow their development team to stand in for some of the parts. I honestly can't think of a character that didn't have a pitch-perfect voice. This is one of those games that was actually enhanced by having voice acting in the game, as opposed to some other earlier adventure titles where the voice acting simply felt like an afterthought. Not so in Day of the Tentacle. Listening to the actors deliver their lines is a joy. Moving on to the narrative and story. Several years after the events of Maniac Mansion, the Edisons are at it again. This time, Dr. Fred has inadvertently left a machine on that continuously pollutes a nearby stream with radioactive lab waste. And one day, Purple Tentacle, who was the evil tentacle from Maniac Mansion, decides to drink from that wastewater. Upon drinking the radioactive waste, Purple Tentacle becomes smarter, stronger, and more maniacal as he sets off to take over the world. 
Green Tentacle, a much more mellow, nice tentacle, sends a note to Bernard, one of the characters from the original Maniac Mansion, asking for help. When Bernard gets the note, he knows there's only one thing that can be done. He needs to return to Maniac Mansion and try to help put an end to Purple Tentacle's schemes. He, along with two of his friends, Hoagie and Laverne, arrive at the mansion and find out that the only way to stop Purple Tentacle from becoming all-powerful is to stop him yesterday. Luckily, Dr. Fred has a time machine, which the three friends end up using, though, as is often the case, things don't go quite as planned, with each person scattered to different time frames in history, one focused on the past, one the present, and the final one, the future. You as the player must control all three characters, navigate three different time periods, solve a ton of different puzzles, interact with a bunch of different characters, and hopefully return to the present time to stop Purple Tentacle once and for all. This story, while relatively simple, really worked for me, and I loved seeing how the three different narratives, each aligned with a different time period, played out. The American Revolutionary War era past provided a very interesting plot framework, and I enjoyed messing around with America's founding fathers to effectively impact the course of history. The present time had its own interesting narrative, whereby Bernard has to deal with a bunch of different quirky guests staying at the Edison Mansion, with a number of humorous situations popping up. And the future, where tentacles now rule the Earth and humans are effectively the equivalent of show dogs, is an interesting point that effectively presents a natural potential future vision given the actions the Purple Tentacle takes earlier in the game. All of these scenes and time periods work perfectly, and they are a blast to explore and play. Moving on to the playability and controls, the game simply controls wonderfully, with traditional point-and-click gameplay perfectly complementing the scenarios and action happening on the screen. Day of the Tentacle, from my perspective, pretty much represents the pinnacle of scum engine verb command-based design. And note, I chose those words very carefully, because later iterations of the scum engine would focus more on the visual command kind of interface as opposed to displaying a list of text commands on the screen, which is an even more streamlined kind of interface. Putting future engine iterations aside, there is nothing wrong with the game as it was designed, and I believe that Day of the Tentacle holds up as well as any adventure game I've seen. There is nothing about it that feels out of date, and unless you already knew about the game, you'd be excused for thinking it might be a more modern title with a retro-based aesthetic. I legitimately have no complaints about the controls. They work, they make sense, and they're fun to use in the game world. As for the overall playability of the title, like I mentioned earlier, this game has some of the best design puzzles you're going to see in an adventure game, with thought-out connections between various puzzles and items, and a general sense of consistency that makes the puzzles feel remarkable to solve. There are a couple that might have you scratching your head for a bit, but from my perspective, every single one of them is solvable without a strategy guide, and they all contain mostly logical solutions that can be figured out if you decide to take the time to really think through them. That said, there was one puzzle that still got me, even though I had played the game before. While I'm going to avoid any sort of spoiler, the puzzle I'm talking about involved doing something to a door that I know, at least for me, I typically never do in adventure games. I'm just going to leave it at that and say that even though that particular puzzle stumped me a bit, I don't assign any fault to the game at all. It's not like the puzzle was illogical, it's just not something I thought to do given the world I was exploring. I wouldn't even consider this a critique per se, more so just an observation. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? Honestly, the game feels amazing to play, even today, and I loved pretty much every aspect of the title. Graphics, sound, acting, story, puzzles, and whatever else you can think to add to the list. Literally everything was a joy to behold and experience, and I think I can count on one hand the number of adventure games that even hold a dim candle to Day of the Tentacle's excellence. It is simply that good. So, our overall verdict for Day of the Tentacle, you could probably guess, given all of the praise I've lavished on the title already, that Day of the Tentacle is absolutely our newest inductee into the pantheon of classic gaming. 
It is a truly timeless experience, and anyone who has ever had any degree of interest in the point-and-click adventure genre owes it to themselves to play this one. It is incredibly close to being a nearly perfect experience in gaming, and I have no qualms about recommending it as not only one of the best adventure games ever made, but also as one of the best games ever released, period. It is truly a high-quality, well-designed game, and because of that, and all of the reasons I've already outlined, Day of the Tentacle is a no-brainer induction into our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Day of the Tentacle. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and I have a Discord server. The link is in the show notes. Discord is the best way to get in touch with me and the rest of the community around this podcast. We have a ton of great discussion and fun things out there, so I do highly encourage you all to join. I also have a Patreon, which is patreon.com slash classic gaming today. So if anybody would like even more classic gaming today goodness, patreon.com slash classic gaming today is where it's at. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be a little bit different. It is going to be our first Sounds of the Classics episode, and this episode is going to be focused on the Nintendo Entertainment System. It's going to be a volume one, so to speak, for the Nintendo Entertainment System. I'm looking forward to that one, and if anybody has any favorite NES musical tracks out there, feel free to let me know, write me a note, we can compare notes and see if your list matches my list. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, and if you would feel so inclined, it would be great to leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to get a bunch of five-star ratings, though if that happens, awesome, it means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is to gather the feedback necessary to make sure that this is the best possible podcast it can be. The only way to do that is to get feedback from the listener community to make sure that I am hitting the mark, don't have any gaps, and truly are creating something unique special, and something that you all enjoy. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on the sounds of the classics, NES Volume 1. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.